0: Good day to you, and welcome to Fascinating. I'm your host, Rick, from Planet Vulcan. My continuing mission on planet Earth, to search for signs of intelligence and to encourage its spread. We Vulcans have noted that Earthlings are currently exhibiting a high level of confusion around the concept of value. Earthlings have long been struggling to define what the concept is, and how value is created. Senior Contributing Editor, Prego Denata claims to have it all figured out, and he submits the following essay. As recently as a few hundred years ago, economists were positing two different types of value and having a lot of difficulty reconciling them. One, value in use, and two, value in exchange. The value in exchange is equal to what you could get for something if you traded it for something else, possibly in barter, but more commonly in cash in a developed economy. In some circumstances, the value in use is equal to the toil and trouble that can be saved by its use, to use Adam Smith's words. Think, for example, of a knife sharpener. Its value in use is based on how much easier it is to cut something with a sharp knife than with a dull knife. Its value in exchange is equal to how much cash you would pay if you bought it or how much cash you would receive if you sold it. In other circumstances, value in use might be the amenity value, that is, the benefit you receive from consuming it or just enjoying it. The two estimates of value might very well not be equal, but it does not follow that they are conceptually different simply because it looks that way from the viewpoint of one individual. Early attempts to get a grip on the concept of value centered around labor. Under a labor theory of value, the idea is that the value of something is equal to the value of the labor that went into its production. It quickly becomes evident, however, that some things have zero value no matter how much labor went into producing them. Think, for example, of the value of laboriously harvested, transported, and stored river ice after the technological innovation of refrigeration. So you have to add some qualifications to the definition. Economist Karl Marx made the labor theory of value, although he never called it that, central to his attempt at an overall explanation of an economic system early economists, such as Adam Smith and David Ricardo, also had proposed a slightly different labor theory of value from that of Marx, which was that the value of something was equal to the amount of labor a worker would have to perform to buy it. Although there is some plausibility to these musings, not everything that needs to fit into the conceptual framework of a labor theory of value fits really well. For example, you are obliged to explain how the value of the man-made inputs to the production process, sometimes referred to as the means of production or real capital, fit into this conceptual framework. Clearly, a laborer coupled with inputs such as machines can produce more than a laborer working without those inputs. A farmer with a tractor can till more acreage than a farmer with a mule. You can say, of course, that the value of capital inputs just represents the labor that was used to produce them. Marx himself, then Engels, and many of their followers since have tried to develop an all-encompassing labor theory of value, but never in a convincing way has the case been made. The arithmetic just doesn't work out. And, if you try to wade through the increasing complexity of attempts to reconcile the premise that all value stems from labor, you might be reminded of attempts to rescue the hypothesis of the Earth-centered universe during the Middle Ages, with astronomers proposing ad-hoc fixes called epicycles whenever the results of observations of the heavens diverged from the predictions that were based on the geocentric theory. In both cases, a simpler theory was called for. Employing the principle of Occam's razor, you get a simpler and therefore better theory of planetary motion if you start by assuming the sun and not the earth is the center of the solar system. And you get a simpler and therefore better theory of value if you start by assuming that the value is ultimately subjective. There is no such thing as intrinsic value as tempting as it is to believe. There are only opinions about value. For example, you can integrate value in use and value in exchange by noting that the value in exchange is simply equal to a consensus estimate of value in use. From an individual's point of view, it only affects buying and selling decisions. You buy it or hang on to it if and only if its value to you is greater than the price, and so on. The consensus estimate of value is commonly referred to as the market price. Market pricing is a fascinating example of social construction, an example that actually makes some operational sense, unlike many purported examples of social construction that are bandied about. The way the social construction works is that each individual decides for themselves what the value of something is, that is, what they are willing to give up to get it. Then, through the interplay of these individual buyers and sellers asking and bidding in the market, a market price emerges. A market price thus represents a consensus opinion about value and it is the closest we can ever come to a measurement of intrinsic value. In spite of its obsolescence, the labor theory of value is still quite influential. There can be little doubt that this concept will eventually go the way of the epicycle, but it presently retains its grip, probably because it can serve as the foundation for many simple, easy-to-understand, wrong answers to complex questions. It lies behind such slogans as equal pay for equal work, for example. This slogan might or might not make sense depending on how you apply it. You might have heard recently of a purported example of sexism in the comparison of basketball players Sue Bird and LeBron James. There are those who say that the disparate earnings of these two players is an example of systemic sexism because even though their respective performances in their respective leagues are comparable, James receives much greater compensation than Byrd. Isn't this unequal pay for equal work? It would be difficult to find a clearer example of the silliness of where the labor theory of value can take you. But if you approach value as subjective, it is easy to understand why LeBron James earns more it is because he creates more value for his many fans than Sue Bird creates for her far fewer fans. You don't need to make the stretch to any isms or archies or to anything else to explain what we observe. And how do you explain why Sue Bird earns so much more than the star male player of the Taiwan Basketball League, even though his stats are even better than hers? Okay, I made that up, but it does illustrate the point. A persistent and frequently employed idea that flows from the labor theory of value is the concept of surplus value. Marxian theorists have dealt with one of the problems alluded to above about things that clearly have no value despite having been costly to produce by introducing the idea of socially necessary value. The socially necessary value of labor is defined as subsistence with replacement. That is, in order to make production sustainable, workers must be paid at least enough to keep body and soul together during their working years, while bringing sufficient offspring to maturity to replace the workers who die. The same reasoning can be applied to capital. The socially necessary value of real capital, not to be confused with financial capital, is defined as the amount of payment necessary to replace capital as it wears out. If you add up the socially necessary values of labor and capital thus obtained, the sum of these socially necessary values will typically fall short of, and often far short of, the total value produced. The difference is referred to as surplus value. If you choose to look at it from this viewpoint, the obvious question then becomes, who gets the surplus value? The answer, according to those who have chosen this viewpoint, is that it is basically up for grabs, and that the wrong people have been grabbing it. They claim it should all be going to the workers, and anything that flows to the owners of capital is coming out of the hide of the owners of labor, that is, the workers. This hypothesized scenario forms the basis of all sorts of ideas, more like rallying cries really, such as the seldom questioned idea that workers are being exploited, that anyone who is rich has wrongfully taken it from someone, that profit is theft, etc. One of the silliest concepts we emerge from Marxian economics is something referred to as the wage-profit frontier. The idea here is that the total revenues of a business, less operating costs, is somehow being split between wages and profits. That is, an extra dollar of wages means one less dollar of profits. It's as if there is someone in a position of authority actually making this decision, although, in fact, no such person exists and no such action is taking place. Wages and profits are ultimately determined by impersonal market forces. So even though wages and profits are presented as trade-offs, they are not things that are literally traded off in the real world. Of course, a deeper problem with this faulty trade-off idea is that it is based on zero-sum thinking, which by now you ought to be realizing is more often than not inapplicable in the study of economics. By now you should also be coming to the conclusion that if you wish for your thoughts and judgments to be in line with science and nature, that is, evolution, the labor theory of value is not a valuable theory of anything. In the ongoing contest between evolution and intelligent design, it's the subjective theory of value that is in line with evolution. The labor theory of value is all about intelligent design and it implies that it is necessary to open the loop in an attempt to exercise control over outcomes. The labor theory of value has been dead for well over a century among the overwhelming majority of economists. It has been undead for just as long among those who find it useful for advancing a political agenda. We have to recognize that in spite of its fatal flaws, the labor theory of value has broad appeal. Why? If you have been around young children, you have to have noticed that they commonly resent it when a sibling is perceived to have received something that they have not. It's not fair, they will exclaim. This phenomenon quite possibly has evolutionary roots. A famous experiment with captive capuchin monkeys who can see the rewards neighboring monkeys are getting for completing a task have shown that as long as they are all rewarded equally, everything is fine. However, if you reward them unequally, give one a grape and the other a cucumber, for example, the one getting the cucumber expresses indignation by angrily tossing the food back at the experimenter even though the cucumber was just fine when everyone was getting it. Similar experiments have been done with dogs and other animals, and the results are similar. Envy seems to have biological roots. Another reason is very likely cultural legacy. Much of the history of humanity has been a history of slavery and oppression. So it has been true in the past that most rich people were rich because they were reaping what others had sown. It is only recently, and not in very much of the world, that contracts among equals, and not power relationships, have determined who gets what. We should always maintain an awareness and an appreciation of the rarity and beauty Of the widespread symbiosis that has emerged in our time and in our part of the world? What about allegedly discriminatory pay practices? Is there anything to these allegations? Are women truly paid less than men for doing the same work? Are members of minorities systematically truly paid less than members of the majority? There certainly has been something to these allegations in the not-too-distant past. Women and minorities have been treated differently under the law and under custom, as undocumented immigrants still are. But differences in legal status have largely been eliminated in this part of today's world. How, then, do you explain the often-repeated statistic the average woman in the workplace Earns only 70 or 80 percent of what the average man earns, for example. And if it is true, what's to be done about it? Can this alleged injustice be dealt with only by political intervention? Let's say that you truly believe that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of underpaid women in the workforce. Why would you not start a business and hire only women? You could offer them, say, 90% instead of 70 or 80%, and this would not only make the women better off, but also give you a competitive advantage over employers who have men in their workforces. You could do well and do good. Of course, someone might come along and hire them all away from you by offering 95%. Eventually, women would reach parity just because of competition for their services except by now you should be realizing that competition already is happening and the tendency is already towards parity without any need for political intervention. You must also acknowledge, if you wish to lay claim to rationality, that any broad differences that persist even after competition has worked its wonders must have another explanation besides exploitation. If you are truly an exploiter, won't competition undermine you. You may have heard recently about a study which showed that female drivers working for Uber and Lyft earn less than male drivers. How do we explain that phenomenon as exploitation given that the algorithm that offers work to these drivers is blind to whether the drivers are male or female? The logical explanation is that in this case, men and women were systematically making different choices. And surely this truism applies across the board. You do not have to make a stretch to any other explanation for observed statistical discrepancies between men and women. The only people who actually benefit from attempts to operate government as a deus ex machina are politicians and lawyers, and a small coterie of politically connected individuals. It is entirely clear that attempts to arbitrarily administer outcomes only operate as a drag on the productivity that benefits us all. And it is furthermore clear that these attempts cannot possibly succeed anyway. You might as well decree, with equal probability of success, that all of the trees in the forest must receive equal amounts of sunlight. Many thanks to Prego for this essay. I invite you to have a listen to the next installment. Please provide feedback to these podcasts if you are so inclined. You may contact me by sending an email to Senior Contributing Editor Prego De Nada. PregoDeNada at gmail.com Live long and prosper!